Thank you, Ryan, for inviting me. It's a privilege to preach, and I don't deserve to preach the Word of God. So I appreciate that. Uh, and I thank you for the church here for sponsoring this. Thank you also, Ryan, for choosing this theme. It's good to be forced to meditate on it. And uh, it's been good for me to uh, have to go through this and, and think about the subject of Christian unity. It's um, interesting. I really stand before you today here as part of this uh, fellowship because of unity. Uh, as I reflect upon it, that's really why I'm here. Having grown up American Baptist, which wasn't a, a liberal church per se, the denomination was headed that way, but it was just milk toast, you know, generic, uh, not teaching much of anything. And then having been converted as a young man in my 20s uh, through the doctrines of grace, and then attending a uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, and being surrounded mostly by Presbyterians, uh, many of the former Baptists uh, who were leaving uh, Baptist churches and converting to be Presbyterian, to then feeling like, no, I'm, I'm a Baptist, uh, you know, I, I know what that means now, and and so where do I go? And so by default, landing in the Southern Baptist Church, and then after many years in Southern Baptist Church, discovering these are not folks who are first primarily Calvinistic and, oh, by the way, I'm Southern Baptist. Uh, this, for the folks I was working with, Southern Baptist really meant something. It was loaded with uh, lots of uh, meaning. And I discovered that's really not me. And so having to eventually withdraw from an association there to ending up independent and, you know, by myself and being one of those people I didn't want to be, where I laid myself open to the charge of being Mr. Lone Ranger, you can't agree with anybody, you can't get along with anybody, uh, to then having a friend who was uh, preaching at uh, one of Larry Dean's convocations of prayers, and so I tagged along and ended up there, and I met you all. And uh, was very happy to have met you all, very happy to be part of this group. And I felt like I found a group of people in whom I could fellowship and that we were on the same page, people who were concerned about prayer, concerned about the direction of our country, uh, who weren't into all the, uh, the dog and pony show tricks to try to gather people to church, uh, who, who didn't have superficial ideas of conversion, who had a unity in their interest in missions and the support of missionaries. And uh, so I valued that unity and uh, the blessing of the unity that we experience here is a blessing to me. So I'm preaching on the subject of the blessing of unity first and foremost, and then we'll look at promoting unity. Uh, the first part's much easier than the second. Blessing of unity, that's easy. Uh, we all know how nice it is to have unity. Our text is just what you would expect it to be, Psalm 133, 1 through 3. If you're going to preach on the blessing of unity, uh, this is a likely place to go. A song of degrees of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. 
So it's a song of degrees or ascents, and the idea there is, is that it's an elevation. You are being taken upward in your thoughts and your meditations to think upon heavenly realities. They start in Psalm 120 and they continue so through Psalm 134. They're all songs of degrees. And as you read through them, you can see that your mind is being elevated to think of things above. And they're quite therapeutic for that reason. It's too bad Freud knew nothing about it. It's written by David, which tells you something as well. For David had a unique ability to speak on the blessings of unity, having experienced quite a bit of its opposite in his life. He tried his best to have unity with his father-in-law Saul. Saul would not have it. He became king, then he dealt with the aftermath of a divided kingdom, and Abner and the issues that, that came after that. Then he didn't appear to be a really good father, and most kings aren't. They have no time. So he has his son Amnon uh, violate his daughter Tamar. Doesn't seem to do much about it, so Absalom takes matters into his own hands and avenges his sister. Then Absalom has to flee, and we've got division and disunity, and he mourns his absence but doesn't seem to know what to do, so then Absalom is brought back. And then Absalom sows discord at the gates of Jerusalem and steals away the hearts of the people until, as you know, David is kicked out and has to flee uh, the city. And here he is experiencing disunity, and he gets the kingdom back. He's always having to deal with those sons of Zeruiah, Joab and Abishai, and the discord that they often seemed addicted to. And in his last years and days. He's still dealing with it. Adonijah tries to take the throne himself and usurp it instead of Solomon. So David had a perspective of the opposite of unity and whenever he saw unity he had a love for it and could say how blessed, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We have likewise, all of us, uh, some ability to uh, compare the two. Everyone who has been married has been experiencing both unity and disunity at times, unfortunately. There's probably not anyone here who's never had a spat with their spouse. And you know how hard that is and how difficult it is to be at odds with your spouse. Most of us have argued with other people in our life. Um, I dare say we all have and have tasted the unpleasantness of strife. We've all been part, I suppose, of groups and clubs, societies, teams, uh, and where, and even churches, where unity was unfortunately sorely lacking. And in our country today, there's very little unity amongst Americans. Political differences are far more pronounced, and each faction is becoming less tolerant of being governed by the other side. We are essentially having a civil war, we just haven't been shooting each other yet. But all the rhetoric, all the, the words spilled on whether, wherever it be, uh, social media or wherever, and the constant warfare that's going back, and you can feel the hatred in the country. Disunity, it seems, is just part and parcel of our depraved nature. We've, we're, we're drawn to it. We're inclined to seek out differences. We're inclined to meet somebody and immediately notice and take note of and accentuate that which differs. Uh, from each other. So in our country we have, you know, old versus young, man versus woman, black versus white versus Hispanic versus Asian, 
rich versus poor, nation against nation, government against citizen, citizen against government, Republican versus Democrat versus Libertarian, state versus other states, and yes, sports rivalries and, and all of that. That are the modern version of people having warfare without shooting at each other. And it just demonstrates that we really have a hard time accepting differences with other people. Thus Paul contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the deeds of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, in this way. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, and I'm not going to read all of them, I'm going to focus on those ones that have to do with disunity. Which are these? Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders. That's the flesh. And that's the deeds of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Sinners don't tolerate differences very well at all. All modern-day boasting about diversity notwithstanding. So against this, black, this backdrop of constant strife, quarrels, dissensions, factions, outbursts of anger, we can say with David, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity, he says, is like the high priest's ointment. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. And we say, what? What does that mean? Well, David obviously never saw Aaron uh, being anointed with oil. Aaron lived hundreds of years before David. So clearly this is a reference to the high priest's anointing. And so then the question becomes, what does unity have to do with the anointing of the high priest? And if you read, I won't read it here, but if you read Exodus 30, 22 through 33, you can read about that ointment that was prepared, and it included all kinds of fragrant spices, things like myrrh, cinnamon, calamus, or cane, and cassia. Scripture calls it the finest of spices, and I'm sure the aroma was quite pleasant, if we were to be able to smell it. It was also quite unique, as the Israelites were forbidden from duplicating it and replicating it for any other purpose. You could not borrow the recipe and use it for anything else. It was only for this occasion and to anoint both the holy priest and the holy things in the tabernacle and the temple. And so this aspect of unity, where that comes in, seems to be that unity has this alluring aroma to it. It smells good. There's something very precious about it that's just it's wonderful. And it's unique. It is unique to the body of Christ. There is no unity on earth like that enjoyed in the body of Christ. Just like there was no other ointment that could be replicated uh, for any other purpose. It is a holy thing. When unbelievers are unified, it is only in their unity against the Lord and against His anointed. That's why Pilate and Herod were able to become friends. Because we're both against Jesus. Other than that, Scripture describes unbelievers is hateful, hating one another. So, of course, Christ is our great high priest, and the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon Christ and comes down upon to the rest of his body, the church. And so you have this connection with the, 
the Holy Spirit and unity. In Psalm 45, 6-8, we read, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hated, hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Remember that? Out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. And in Acts 10.38 we read how God anointed, this is Peter speaking, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. So we have that connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit and unity which is a re-emphasis of what Kyle was talking about. The connection is also pointed out in Ephesians 4 which is where we'll be going when we look at how to promote unity, and their unity is, of course, called the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You just cannot have this unity apart from the Holy Spirit. Uh, David says it's like the dew of Hermon, verse 3, as the dew of Hermon, and then in italics, and that's letting you know that these words are not in the original, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And I bring up the point about the italics because I think what's actually going on here is that the, the dew of Hermon is falling on Zion. So it doesn't make sense, of course. How does the dew that falls on Hermon fall on Zion? Uh, Hermon was noted for the plentiful dew that would fall there and the replenishing power of that dew for the ground. I think what David is doing is speaking poetically, and when I refer to po uh, poetry, I'm not meaning it like liberals mean it. Like, it means nothing. Or that it doesn't mean any real truth. I just mean that it, it is a song. It's poetically written. That's the genre of it. And it would be like me standing here saying uh, that there's something wonderful happening. It's going to be like the, the falls of Niagara falling on Mount Mountain Home. Well, you would know what I mean. You know I don't mean literally that the water that falls off Niagara Falls is going to fall on Mount Home. What I mean is, is that this gushing water and this uh, a tremendous downpouring would be falling here. And I think that's what he's doing when he talks about the dew of Hermon falling on the mountain of Zion. David is in Zion. That is the city of Zion. That's where he loves to see unity because that's where he is and that's where the house of God is. There the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So unity is a precious thing. And it's not to be parted with lightly, as Jeff said. You don't want to sacrifice unity over trivial things. Because it is a precious, delightful, sweet-smelling aroma that isn't found very many places in this world. And how sad it would be to take something so precious and so exquisite and so unique and, and rare and throw it away over nothing. Blessed, as the hymn says, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Now, before we deal with the text of Ephesians 4, 1-3, and how to promote unity, let's just consider some basic truths about unity, and some of this will be reinforcement with what Jeff just said. 
both of those guys, uh, you're fortunate they shortened my sermon um, because of their groundwork laid ahead of time. Uh, unity is obviously not. What is it not? It is not the so-called ecumenical movement where there's a sanctimonious call to set aside all doctrinal differences, agree that they don't matter, followed by a call to join into some social gospel cause. That's not what the Bible is referring to when it speaks of unity. Another form of false unity is when a church pretends to have a unity it doesn't really have, and that may occur when a church seeks to be so user-friendly or seeker-friendly, as they call it, that it avoids preaching on many subjects that would disturb this fragile, shallow unity and offend certain people, and they would leave. So you don't want to preach on those, and therefore you have unity. That's not what the Bible means by unity. And then finally, there's the kind of unity that we have in dictatorships. Uh, agree with me or else. <laughs> um, you suspend all of your convictions and all of your beliefs. You adopt mine upon pain of death. And then we all get along. Just great. That's the unity of a dictatorship. That's not what is meant by Christian unity. But, let's be clear, just because there is all these false versions of unity out there does not mean there isn't a real one and a genuine biblical unity and that we shouldn't seek to obtain it or uh, rather maintain it. And many churches are destroying their own unity in different ways. And there's some obvious ways of promoting unity that I'll go through quickly uh, prior to Ephesians 4. One is just filling the church with unregenerate people. That is not going to help with unity. If you have weak membership standards, if you overlook what the scriptures describe as a convert and the marks of a convert, and you ignore all that, and you just are looking for someone with a pulse, and you get those folks into your church, you're bound to have problems and strife and, and quarrels and, and those sorts of things in your church. So, yes, we want unbelievers to come to church, but in really, in truth, we want a certain kind of unbeliever. We do not want one who's stirring up strife. We do not want a heckler in the pew. One, one time I had a drunk person in, in the pew, um, it wasn't really heckling me, but he was just chattering continuously, and he and his other drunk friend were amening things. And, and, and I finally just stopped the sermon. I said, are we having a sobriety problem? And they, you know, they just kind of, and I said, we need to shape it up, okay? This is the word of God. This is a holy time. It's time to be listening to this, all right? And they, they behaved themselves from down now. But you're not looking to fill your pews with people who will do that and disrupt the service. Yes, we want people to be saved, but we know there's a lot of people who seek to cause trouble, and that's not really who we're looking for. Uh, we hope they'll be saved from their troublemaking ways. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? So if there's no common ground between these two groups of people, then we're not doing ourselves any favors as far as unity by forcibly mingling the two. Uh, preaching the word and not what would tickle ears is not everyone, but it will send a lot of people who don't like the word away. And so by simply preaching the word and being faithful to it, 
you are working at securing a unity. Because those who don't like it don't want to put up with it. There are some who have amazing perseverance in that regard. <laughs> Applying biblical standards to church discipline as well, uh, which Jeff was talking about. If we want disunity, never practice church discipline. But if you want unity, you'll have to practice it. Because there will be troublemakers. Satan will be sure of it. In Proverbs 26, 20-21, we read, Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. And where there is no tail-bearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals, as wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. And if you let that go on in your church without rebuking them and perhaps excommunicating them, if there is no repentance, then there will be no unity. It will all be trashed. So let's consider Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Kyle said, I don't know how you can avoid Ephesians 4 and preach on unity. He's right. How could you avoid this passage? And this passage has been brought up a number of times already. So let's look at these words in it. The first thing I noticed about the passage was the word keep in verse 3. And that, of course, indicates that we are about the business of keeping something that we already have. We're maintaining something that already exists. We're not trying to find unity. We have unity. And we're supposed to keep it. Keep the unity that you already have. Jesus prayed for us to have unity in John chapter 17. And unless we are willing to suggest that Jesus' prayer to the Father was utterly ignored. And that he didn't hear him. And that he didn't grant that request. Then we must acknowledge that the church indeed has unity. And has had for 2,000 years. And it's in a unity not that exists between every person who says they're a Christian. Of course, that doesn't exist. It is a unity amongst true Christians. He's praying for true Christians in John 17, 20 through 23. Here's what he prayed. Neither pray I for these alone, that is just the disciples alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So, Jesus prayed for unity. His prayer was most certainly heard by the Father, and answered. So really, what a lot of what we see, we have to acknowledge. Let's not feel guilty about something we don't even have to feel guilty about. A lot of the disunity we see out there is not between true Christians. It's between true Christians and false Christians, of which we should expect disunity. Now, I'm not saying that's all the disunity. I'm just saying that is a lot of it that does happen, that does exist. The devil's children will be quarreling with God's children. And there's really not a lot we could do about that. All true Christians, 
are unified in one very important sense. We're united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Christ in you, Christ in me. Christ gets along with Christ really well. And if Christ is in me and Christ is in you, we have this bond between us, drawing us together. This triune God is pulling us together toward one another. Now, having said that, obviously the unity can be obscured and can be threatened by the flesh. Not destroyed, but it can be obscured and troubled. Which is why Paul exhorts us to keep, be diligent to keep, keep the unity of the Spirit. So how do we keep it? In the bond of peace. And he specifies what it means to have that bond of peace. These words, lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That's the recipe for unity. That's it, right there. Those words. Lowliness. Let's look at that one first. Also, uh, can be translated humility. Someone who insists on being first, of course, will challenge the unity of any society. But the lowly person will not insist on being first. He'll deny himself. He'll consider the interests of others to be more important than his own. And that is a person that is really hard to not get along with. A proud person will have great regard for his own wisdom and his own words, and so he's going to be very quick to speak and slow to listen because he thinks much of his wisdom. He's very opinionated then. He's very quick to dismiss the ideas of other people. He's very apt to think that his wisdom and knowledge are superior to other people's. So he's not going to contribute to group unity. But conversely, the lowly person will be slow to speak Quick to listen. He'll have a healthy suspicion of himself. He will remember, I think I've been wrong before. Every now and then. And I may have, I could possibly learn something from this man, from this woman. Maybe I should listen to what they say. The proud person, of course, will have to have his way. He'll be pushy. He'll push for his way. And a person like that in church will not be helping the unity of the society. But the lowly person doesn't do that. He's not pushy to get his way. He doesn't need to have his own way. He knows how to yield. He understands that there's hills to die on, and there's hills you can live with. And not every hill is a hill to die on. And the lowly person understands that. Meekness is the next one, or gentleness. This goes hand in hand with humility. You can't have one without the other. You can't have meekness without lowliness. There is a Christian way to speak to each other. There's a tone that is to characterize our words. And that is meekness or gentleness. We're commanded. This is not an option. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that we are to be gentle. Nothing will so quickly destroy unity as words that are scathing the way that we might speak toward one another. Unfortunately, all too often, those are justified under other terms like forthrightness and boldness and frankness. But oftentimes, those are just euphemisms for harshness. When you don't have to be harsh to be bold, it took me quite a while to understand that. 
You don't have to be harsh to be bold. The boldness comes in the content. That you're willing to say something that may be hard to say, that may not be popular to say, but you don't have to say it in a scathing fashion. That isn't boldness. Long-suffering and forbearance I'm going to take together because though there may be a distinction between the one, I'm not smart enough to figure out what it is. But we are duty-bound to be patient toward one another and suffer along with one another. This is not like an advanced placement class for certain Christians or some special track for gifted Christians. This is just simply the responsibility all of us have. God has been extremely patient with us and he continues to be extremely patient with us. And he's pledged to continue to be patient with us. Shall we do any less with one another? If there was one person who had a right to say, that's enough. I've had it with you. I am done with you. I'm so sick and tired of you. It would be God. And God doesn't say that. God doesn't do that with us. Shall we then bask in God's patience and then go out and choke our neighbor? Most of our failures in preserving Christian unity are due to impatience, our inability to tolerate certain differences. We need to be patient with the immaturity of other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As Jeff said, we're not all at the same point in our walk. We're not all at the same place in our sanctification. We weren't all saved at the same time. Different things that God uses to mature us, He doesn't necessarily appoint the same things for the other person in the same dose. There's mystery involved in this as well. But we must not exist that everyone be exactly where we are in our walk in sanctification before we will tolerate one another. If we have that mindset, we're certainly not very patient. And we're not very mature either. It's not us being mature, being impatient with immature people. The, the person who's mature is patient. There may be in the body of Christ, maybe there is, believers with idiosyncrasies that have odd things about them that they do or say. Go to any church, and you'll find it. And are we not going to be patient with them? We need to be patient with the knowledge of others. Not everyone has the same amount of time they've spent in the Word. And what I know is not the bare minimum for Christian tolerance. We can't all allow ourselves to fall into the trap of saying... Well, I discovered this in my studies last month, and that's now the new litmus test for orthodoxy. I mean, if I just became a Christian at that, how come I didn't come forth and confess it and submit myself for baptism again? That's now the new litmus test for orthodoxy. We need to be patient with others when they come to a different but plausible interpretation of Scripture such that we see how they got there that was rational. I see you're using text. I see the reason there. I see the logic. I don't agree with how you got there, but it's not destructive to orthodoxy. 
And so being patient with those sorts of things. You've heard eschatology mentioned. That's a great example. Study the different views on eschatology, whether it's amil, uh, historic pre-mill, dispensational pre-mill, or post-millennialism, or uh, take the approach of just how to interpret the book of Revelation in some sort of partial preterist fashion, or an historicist fashion, or a futurist fashion. And everybody's got a different reason for doing it, and you can kind of see how they got there. And we need to be patient with those kinds of things and other areas where we might disagree with them. And I wholeheart please understand this, I wholeheartedly affirm everything that's been said about essential, non-essential. Just a clarification. We don't mean when we say those words that there's any part of Scripture that's not essential. Or that, that I have the authority to pick chapters or verses or doctrines and say, no, that's not important. You don't need to believe that. We're talking about what's essential for fellowship. What's essential for fellowship. If we don't have room in our theology for Romans 14, we're going to have trouble with unity. Romans 14, of course, deals with the different convictions that someone might have about something. And being patient with the weaker brother. Ephesians 14, 1-6 says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputation. For one that believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. And it goes on. But did you hear that statement of Paul? Let him be fully convinced in his own mind. And we want to say, no, Paul, that's not what's important. The important thing is that they understand I'm right. <laughs> and they're wrong. And they verbalize it. it. And all this is just not to say that there's anything of Christian doctrine that's not important, that when we have differences that we're saying, oh, they're just not important. I'm not saying that. Nor are we saying there isn't one of the two views that's correct Maybe it's a third view and you're both wrong. We're not saying there, this is relativism and truth is unknowable and you just can't know it. We're not saying those things and that's not what we're being required to say. We're not saying you shouldn't study these things. We're not saying that you can't discuss them with one another. Although, if you sense that this is not profitable to discuss, that it is only going to elevate people's blood pressure then it might not be the time to discuss it. What we're saying is, is that we are commanded in these things to be long-suffering and forbearing with one another and not insist that everyone sees matters as we do in all things before there can be genuine Christ Christian unity. We might wish that everyone thought alike on everything and that everybody, every single Christian who picked up their Bible read it and everybody came to the same doctrinal conclusion on everything. 
and that we practiced Christianity all the same. And that from church to church to church, it wouldn't matter which one you visited, they all do it the same. There will be that kind of unity in heaven. But we're not in heaven yet. And in the meantime, what we are to do is to be patient with one another, long-suffering for one another. God could secure that kind of doctoral uniformity now. He could have done it long ago. For some reason, in his, in his mystery, he has not. And what he has required instead is that we be patient with each other's differences in this regard. And it would seem that he's more interested in granting us now unity through meekness and lowliness of mind and long-suffering and forbearance than through exact doctrinal uniformity. I want to close with a meditation by Jonathan Edwards, uh, one of my favorite sermons, I guess, or discourses of all time, uh, Heaven, a World of Love. And it describes the unity that we are going to enjoy soon. There are many principles contrary to love that make this world like a tempestuous sea. Selfishness and envy and revenge and jealousy and kindred passions keep life on earth in constant tumult and make it a scene of confusion and uproar where no quiet rest is to be enjoyed except in renouncing this world and looking to another. But oh, what rest is there in that world which the God of peace and love fills with his own gracious presence? and in which the Lamb of God lives and reigns, filling it with the brightest and sweetest beams of His love, where there is nothing to disturb or offend, and no being or object to be seen that is not surrounded with perfect amiableness and sweetness, where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love and so be perfectly satisfied, where there is no enemy and no enmity, but perfect love in every heart and to every being, where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants, no one envying one another, but everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other, where all their love is humble and holy and perfectly Christian, without the least carnality or impurity, where love is always mutual and reciprocated to the full, where there is no hypocrisy or dissembling, but perfect simplicity and sincerity where there is no treachery or unfaithfulness or inconstancy or jealousy in any form, where there is no clog or hindrance to the exercises or expressions of love, no imprudence or indecency in expressing it, and no influence of folly or indiscretion of any word or deed, where there is no separation wall and no misunderstanding or strangeness, but full acquaintance and perfect intimacy in all, where there is no division through different opinions or interests, but where all in that glorious and loving society shall be most nearly and divinely related, and each shall belong to every other, and all shall enjoy each other in perfect prosperity and riches and honor without any sickness or grief or persecution or sorrow or any enemy to molest them or any busybody to create jealousy or misunderstanding or mar the perfect and holy and blessed peace that reigns in heaven. And all this in the garden of God, in the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love, and everything conspires to promote and kindle it and keep up its flame, and nothing ever interrupts it, 
But everything has been fitted by an all-wise God for its full enjoyment under the greatest advantages forever. And all, too, where the beauty of the beloved object shall never fade and love shall never grow weary nor decay, but the soul shall more and more rejoice in love forever. Oh, what tranquility there will be in such a world as this, and who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm is this! How sweet and holy and joyous! What a haven of rest to enter after having passed through the storms and tempests of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and contention and vice are as waves of a restless ocean always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury. What a Canaan of rest to come after going through this waste and howling wilderness full of snares and pitfalls and poisonous serpents where no rest could be found. And oh, what joy will there be springing up in the hearts of the saints after they have passed through their wearisome pilgrimage to be brought to such a paradise as this. Here is joy unspeakable indeed and full of glory, joy that is humble, holy, enrapturing, and divine in its perfection. Love is always a sweet principle and especially divine love. This, even on earth, is a spring of sweetness, but in heaven it shall become a stream, a river, an ocean, all shall stand about the God of glory who is the great fountain of love, opening, as it were, their very souls to be filled with those effusions of love that are poured forth from His fullness, just as the flowers on the earth in the bright and joyous days of spring open their bosoms to the sun to be filled with His light and warmth and to flourish in beauty and fragrancy under His cheering rays. Every saint in heaven is as a flower in that garden of God. And holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor that they all send forth and with which they fill the bowers of that paradise above. Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweet harm, sweetly harmonizes with every other note. And all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. And so all help each other to their utmost to express the love of the whole society to its glorious Father and Head, and to pour back love into the great fountain of love whence they are supplied and filled with love and blessedness and glory. And thus they will love and reign in love and in that godlike joy that is its blessed fruit, such as I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath ever entered into the heart of man in this world to conceive. And thus in the full sunlight of the throne, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God and Christ forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And we pray, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. May we pursue that type of love, that type of unity with God's people on earth now as we anticipate that heavenly unity. Some very helpful, very important things to consider. You know, as we think about those characteristics of humility and of love and how that affects unity, just a, a few thoughts to to add and 
before we close for the evening. I've been very grateful for all three of our speakers and for clear presentation of biblical principles and helpful application. You know, we think about we think about love and love in the midst of debate and love in the midst of standing for truth and seeking to help correct people in error. There are times when we think, do we desire for someone to be a heretic? You know, do, do, we, do we hope that they are? Is that what, is that what we want? <laughs> I've, I've had times in my life, I think, where I get caught up in the midst of the debate and the pride side says, well, I want to be right. That means they have to be wrong. And if I'm right, and it's an, I'm saying this is an issue of heresy or whatnot, then there's a sense in which I want them to be a heretic. And true love, though, will say, I hope that I'm wrong. <laughs> I hope that I'm wrong about them. I hope that I'm wrong about what they're saying. I hope I'm mistaken, and they're not really saying what they appear to be saying, right? I hope they're not really a heretic. I don't want them to be a heretic. I don't want them to be one who is striving against the truth. And so humility then will always question self and will be willing to question and challenge self, challenge oneself. You know, as we, as we think about our, our fellowship, I'm very thankful to have been able to serve in some way as chairman of the fellowship for the past couple of years. And one area that I need to constantly be improving in and I encourage all of us in as we strive for this unity is that let's be willing to challenge, first of all, our own individual selves even more than we challenge others. So let's examine our own selves and do that regularly and frequently. And then, as we think about even what Brother Jeff was saying and the unity that we strive for when we have groups of people such as ourselves in Sovereign Grace Baptist Fellowship who have common objectives, let's be willing to challenge and question ourselves within our own group even more than we challenge and question other people outside of our group. In a positive way. In an encouraging way. Okay? See what I'm saying with this? Let's strive to have that openness and that love for one another and that humility which says we can challenge one another. We can have friendly debates. We can disagree over certain matters. And we can strengthen one another. That iron sharpening iron as we interact with one another. There's a sense in which it's important for us to recognize that, yes, we always have a place and there's always a need. Just read the scriptures. There's always a need to defend against error that comes from outside. Right? There's always a need to defend against error that comes from outside. 
But at the same time as well, there's always a need to be strengthened from within and to encourage and to challenge from within. And there's always a need to stay focused upon Christ. He is our central focus, isn't he? It's not us versus them. But if we must separate, Brother Jeff, as you have mentioned, it's because they are separating. <laughs> they're, they're leaving. Why? Because we're united in Christ and we're holding to the truth of Christ. So I pray that these messages have been encouraging to us. I pray that they have strengthened us in our knowledge of the truth. And I pray that we will always strive for that love, strive for that humility, which is willing to question ourselves, which is willing to even say, can I learn from someone outside my immediate circle, my immediate group? Do they, do they have anything to offer to me? May the Lord be glorified in that. Thankful again for the preaching of the word and for the gathering of the brethren here this week. As we conclude for the evening, I do want to mention that we're very thankful to Brother Kyle, Brother Russ, as they have volunteered at Community Baptist. Elmensdorf, did I pronounce that correctly? No S. Okay. No S. No S. Elms. Elm. Elmendorf. I've been I've been working on that name for a while, and I've, I got an S in there somehow. And if, you know, if you have, have you ever had that happen? The first the first speech that I was to give in college was a speech of introduction, and I was supposed to introduce one of my fellow classmates. Well, while I was preparing that speech, I got her name mixed up with another girl's name. And I was scared to death that I was going to stand up and the, the speech of introduction, it's about introducing this person by name and that I was going to say, I was going to say Krista or Kara instead of Krista. <laughs> Somehow I managed to get it right that time. But, uh, but we're very thankful anyway that uh, they volunteered to host the 2016 Sovereign Grace Baptist Fellowship meeting and that that will be hosted uh, the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the second Tuesday of September. And we look forward to that. Also, uh, I'm very honored to introduce to you the executive committee for the next term. And we have uh, voted today to extend the term limits of the position of chairman and vice chairman to two years instead of one year. So uh, these men in position of position of chairman and vice chairman are locked in for two years unless the Lord has other ideas and then they can be nominated for a second term for a total of four years and then of course we're very thankful to the steady labors of our treasurer and our secretary but the executive committee for the year chairman brother Kyle White and the vice chairman brother Curtis Knapp and then Secretary Larry Dean and Treasurer Ron Staley. We're very thankful for you men. Pray that the Lord will bless you in the upcoming year. So 
Let's do be dismissed in prayer. If there are other no other uh, matters that need to be mentioned at this time. So. Um, brother, can I have the officers after we're dismissed to come on up here and I'll take their picture so Greta doesn't get upset with me for not taking it. <laughs> okay. We will do that. And uh, I'm teasing, Car sister. You, I know you won't get upset. Uh, Carl, before we're dis dismissed in prayer, what? How's your wife? Doing she, right now? She's still recovering. So. Still recovering. Okay. 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 Let's uh, let's do continue the night. Uh, although we voted to do it in the uh, uh, business meeting, the members of your church do not know that the Sovereign Grace Baptist Fellowship uh, voted to express our appreciation uh, for all that you guys have done to make this a wonderful time for us. So we, we thank you. Both from the heart and officially, we thank you. Amen. Amen. All right. Brother Kyle White, would you close in prayer, please? Dearly Father, we come to you at this time at the end of this evening as our minds have been exercised, our hearts have been affected, we have searched, uh, you have searched us, uh, your word has been set before us, we, we view you tonight as the true and the living God, the three in one, we, we bless you and we, we seek to understand you more fully, we, we want to be increasingly like our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we're thankful that by your grace according to your eternal purpose and you've called us and you have placed us in Christ we have uh, drunk of the same spirit we're thankful that we are in him and I pray that as we process the, the truths that have been given to us tonight that we would be able to work them out in our lives we fully understand Maybe we don't fully understand, but at least to a large degree from our own experience, we understand how difficult it is to get along. And we understand that there are pitfalls, and we understand that there are blind spots, and, and we need help. And so we're asking for the, that powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit that to work in us that which needs to be worked. And, Whatever it is you need to take us through to bring us to that place where we can live as we ought to live, one with another, we yield ourselves to you. We don't want there to be any unclean thing in us or about us. And so we continue to live this life with the desire to achieve that perfection uh, that you've called us unto. We, we want to be holy as you are holy. So as we, as we come to the end of this evening, we return thanks to you. You've answered our prayers as we've asked you to speak to us uh, through the ministry of your word. And, and you have done so and you've blessed this meeting so far. Thank you for this church, for Summit, uh, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, who you have dealt with, you have brought these brethren together in love for one another, expressing 
the love that you have placed within them. I, I pray that you continue to encourage them as they uh, continue to seek to um, keep, endeavor to keep that unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, to bless their leadership. And as they work together as one body in Christ, that it would be evident to all the community around here that you are the true and the living God. You are real that Jesus Christ truly did come and he, he truly did die. And he is alive and he is, is alive in them. And I pray that the community might see that the gospel through their example. And that you would bless each of the churches represented in this fellowship. That we might serve you faithfully in our communities where you've placed us. So we commit ourselves to you now as we as we leave this room tonight. We want to leave this room walking in the Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.